This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. All right, we do want to get into the latest on the virus headlines. We've had a lot. We just uh, heard about New York Mayor Bill de Blasio warning parents to get ready for city schools to halt in-person classes. That could happen as soon as Monday. California, Oregon, and Washington State urging arriving people to self-quarantine as hospitals across the region are, quote, stretched to capacity. Germany reigning in expectations that restrictions could ease by Christmas, and Austria flagging plans to expand its limited lockdown. And then you've got a program for vaccines in poorer countries reaching $2 billion in funding. There is a lot going on, a lot going on this week. So let's uh, figure out kind of where we are when it comes to COVID-19. Back with us for our weekly chat, Dr. Ian Lusbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center, back with us on the phone in New York City. So nice to have you here. We missed you last week. It was an election week. It's like we have been i feel like bombarded our heads have been bombarded on so many different levels ian definitely a news avalanche always a pleasure to be with you and share uh, hopefully some uh, uh enlightening uh, medical wisdom hopefully. well well share share away because it's been an interesting week and we've seen it play out in the markets in that there was a lot of enthusiasm come monday because of the pfizer news we're awaiting Moderna news, uh, and I just, I was actually talking with the Moderna CEO, uh, getting ready to prep for a Bloomberg event, and I, I do wonder, I feel like as the week has played out, Dr. Lespader, that there's a realization that we still don't know a lot. We don't know how long the production might last from one of these vaccines. We don't know how soon large parts of the population can be immunized, excuse me. So there's a lot of unanswered questions, basically. Absolutely. Look, I think we've made great progress, really amazing warp speed progress uh, mm-hmm. in, in under a year. You know, the first cases really came in, you know, February, March uh, of last year. Uh, and it, it has been a rough go with, uh, you know, really limited uh, ability to, to fight the virus. But I think we've made good progress. And as we, uh, those listeners who tuned in um, two weeks ago, we were talking about uh, imminent approval and, and results, the high antibody titers, and how several of the vaccines really looked uh, very, very promising. And in fact, uh, for those who listened, uh, they would would not have been surprised with the uh, with a positive Pfizer announcement because we we really talked about that. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to see you know similar. I'm not sure I can say 90 percent uh, effectiveness, but certainly high numbers with the other vaccines that are coming along. Uh, the Moderna vaccine, as you know, is a similar messenger mm-hmm. RNA, and that is a unique. Uh, technique of of uh, injecting mRNA, uh, which is uh, the the material that that we use to make proteins, and that gets absorbed by the cell. Uh, the cell then makes the spike protein. You the body then forms antibodies to that spike protein, and it does seem to be very effective. Some of the limitations, which were outlined in uh, uh, Bloomberg uh, magazine that uh, on on the vaccines. Mm-hmm. You know the Pfizer vaccine does have to be kept at um, sub-zero temperatures, which you know does limit 
you know, the average doctor's office from uh, administering it. So, so that may be a limitation. Some of the newer vaccines that are coming along may have less limitations in that way. So that Uh, I think we're hopeful about all of that. But at the end of the day, we're going to need multiple vaccines. Why? Because you have limited manufacturing. So if you've got uh, billions of people, or at least in the United States, 300 million, Mm -hmm. uh, we're really going to need multiple companies to manufacture these. And I think the data will show that they're all comparably effective, not 100%, but certainly more than the 50% that we were hoping for in order to really get, um, you know, an effective uh, response. Well, you know, it's interesting. Do you think it would have been smarter as a kind of a some kind of global plan where, I mean, does it make sense that there were so many different companies working on different vaccines or should we have all kind of grouped our efforts and somehow come up with a vaccine and then everybody manufactures that vaccine or am I just stupid and don't understand this world? No, no, because, you know, we we were not sure that which of these technologies would really be effective. You know, mRNA, messenger RNA, really is a is a unique approach it, it it just because it makes sense you know theoretically or in the lab doesn't necessarily mean it will translate to an effective vaccine and i think because it's new unfortunately there are some people who have vaccine hesitancy um and i and i think uh you know, we don't have years of data the way we do for many other vaccines that take a long time. So there will be a little bit of a leap of faith, but it does look like the um, uh, complications and, and side effects are low, not zero. Uh, and it does look like the efficacy is, is high, which is important. Right. So hopefully people will be positive and enthused. I think in the next few months it will become more available. And I certainly think people should not judge uh, taking it or not based on who the president is. I mean, it, 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 these companies are vetted very carefully by the FDA and go through committees that are very thorough. And, and these vaccines would not be released, you know, unless their data, their safety data, uh, you know, was very clearly reviewed. Well, that's a big so, part. Uh, but that's a big part of it, right, um, Dr. Lesbader? I mean, the messenger RNA technology that's used in the Pfizer Um, vaccine has never been deployed in humans before, right? So people who are getting this vaccine really need to be monitored for a while, right, to track the safety and the efficacy over the coming weeks. Absolutely. So part of that is the fact that um, two vaccines seem to be needed to get optimal effectiveness. And we see that with other vaccines. The pneumonia vaccine, which is recommended for people with COPD or people over 65, that's two different um, vaccines approximately a year apart. We see that with a shingles vaccine, which is a recombinant DNA vaccine. That's also to be most effective, two vaccines, and that's a couple of months apart usually. So it's not unusual to have a vaccine with a booster, but you are right. We don't have years of data, and people are really going to have to weigh, you know, risk versus benefit, um, given the fact that most young people do well, but certainly not all. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we're going to be targeting populations People on the front lines, healthcare providers, I certainly would be uh, open to taking the vaccine. And if you're elderly, have lung disease, heart disease, obesity, if you're in any of those risk categories, I think it would be kind of crazy not to take it because if you get COVID, uh, the statistics uh, do not look good. 
So I don't know, you know, it does feel like, Ian, that it's going to be a pretty dark winter. And um, despite what we've all seen before and what we've learned before, it's getting more challenging, I think, for individuals in terms of pandemic fatigue, people just kind of tired of either working from home and just their lives kind of being shut down um, and, and having just a hard time dealing with it. What are you seeing from patients? So I agree. I think there's pandemic fatigue. And I think your point about collaboration early on uh, made a lot of sense, whether it's on the vaccine front uh, or whether it's on a lockdown, a global lockdown front. There's a lot of talk about lockdowns again. And it's unclear to me how beneficial this will be, risk-benefit. Gundlach and others talked back in February uh, and early March about a national lockdown. Uh, And I think a national or a global lockdown at that time might have made sense. Now it's, uh, I think, uh, the balance may be more trauma, whether emotional or even financial trauma to people. And uh, of unclear benefit, um, there's such community spread And we've now learned that a lot of um, uh, certainly young people harbor the virus with no symptoms, and it's unclear how cooperative people would even be with that. So I think that the concept or talk about lockdowns is is questionable. We don't really have good data how effective that's going to be at this point. We don't have a lot of old studies to, to look at. And I think we have to, again, emphasize individual responsibility. Wash your hands, wear the masks, do all the things that we talk about on a right. weekly basis um, to take individual responsibility. And certainly if you're in a high risk group uh, to do that. But I agree with you. The the wave is certainly increasing. Not everyone is like lucky Ed Kalegi. Uh, you know, you can't um, you can't push it. I think people need to really um, protect themselves as best as can be. And others, kids coming back from college now in the um, you know for Thanksgiving or yeah. or for the uh, uh, holiday breaks should really be checked at college before they come back to either parents or grandparents. You know, we have to be smart about it. And I think that may work better than sort of widespread lockdowns, which uh, may may not even be that effective uh, anyway. But I agree with you. Cooperation early on, and I think if there's one lesson we should have learned, is that we need better international cooperation because there will be another pandemic or there will be some other global crisis. And we do need to work together better while, you know, being competitive or or pursuing our own individual, you know, national goals. We do need in some circumstances to really cooperate. And I think we missed that opportunity. Yeah, you do wonder what we could have done, right? And really looking forward, I do wonder, you know, the conversations you might be having with some of your, you know, colleagues in the medical community about just think about, though, even though we're still dealing with the pandemic, that how we have reduced the time span of developing a vaccine, right, from a decade to a year. Just think about what you could do with this kind of concentration and cooperation and coordination in terms of other health problems that have really plagued our society. 100% correct. If we can do this in under a year, which is record-breaking, by working together and focusing, whether you're talking climate or energy or many other things, that are problems that need to be addressed. I think it shows that we, it shows our potential. You know, not perfect. The vaccines are not perfect. We've made great progress. Um, You know, we're still uh, clarifying safety and efficacy. But I think uh, you're exactly right. I think there are many lessons to be learned. 
And unfortunately, we still need to try and protect our healthcare workers. They're fatigued. They're overwhelmed. Um, It's a challenge. You know, we are certainly not out of the woods uh, until the next few months when the vaccines become more available. It's going to be a rough few months, exactly as you say. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you, and I didn't really want to end on a down note, but I do wonder, and I do, I am concerned about our healthcare community. You're there seeing it. Do you see the numbers, the trends just going in a troubling way? Yeah, we're definitely seeing more uh, COVID cases, I think, in the Northeast or where we are, because it was such a bad March and April. uh, We know that there's a 10 or 20 percent antibody positivity. So uh, it does seem at this point that the biggest problems are really in the upper Midwest. Uh, No state is really free of problems. And we do have to be on guard. I think we are when kids come back from schools and so forth. We are going to see that second and possibly even third waves. But we do have to really be as prudent as can be for the next few months until I do think we will have vaccines that become more um, widely available. And I think people should really be open to read about them and be yeah. open to taking them, because unless we get a lot of people on board, um, all that energy and effort will be for naught. Right. And that's what I'm hearing, that if you really understand the science of how these vaccines work, uh, those that might be kind of on the fence about whether or not to take it, you'll, you'll understand it and it, it'll make more sense and probably feel more secure about it in general. Um, Ian, thank you so much. Stay safe. Have a good weekend. Dr. Ian Lusbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center, joining us on the phone in New York City. And this again on a day where New York's daily COVID-19 cases exceeded 5,000. That's the highest for the state since April. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio warning parents to get ready for city schools to halt in-person classes as soon as Monday. You've got Illinois reporting a record number of daily cases and hospitalizations, and that's a day after Chicago announced a stay-at-home advisory. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody. Friday edition of Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Quick check on the markets. Up 40 points on the S&P, up 369 points on the Dow, a 1.3% gain. NASDAQ up about two-thirds of 1%. Now, we mentioned this story yesterday, and we talked about the Bloomberg New Economy Forum. It kicks off on Monday. It's a virtual event, four days of global programming. And speaking of programming, Business Week magazine has also programmed itself this week, really digging into the many issues that will be covered at the forum. And that includes a story about creating the 15-minute city. And so let's get into it with Laura Bliss. She's reporter for Bloomberg City Lab. She's on the phone in San Francisco. Also joining us is Bloomberg Business Week editor, Jill Weber, on the phone in Brooklyn. I love this story, Jill. Yeah, perhaps one of my favorites in the issue. It probably the favorite in the issue, and it really fulfills sort of the urbanization pillar that uh, of NEF. Um, there's several pillow, pillars, and that's yeah, that's what this one fa- falls in. And it's this idea that I think has really become um, uh, ca- caught on with urban planners in certain cities around the world. That what if you could live in a in a city where everything that you needed in your day- daily life from your job to your kids school to where you get your groceries etc etc was basically in a 15 minute radius of your front door um and once you do that you know you don't have commutes you don't have cars and it can sort of totally transform uh quality of life as well and that idea is one that boy it sounds really appealing to me at least um Mm -hmm. and and laura i'm curious how is this taking shape um around the world yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. Um, and just 
smiling uh, listening to you praise the article, Joel. So thank you so much for that. Um, it was really fun to work on. So this is, you know, a 15-minute city, as you've been describing it, right? I mean, it's it's really not a totally new idea, right? I mean, I think we can think back to how cities were laid out before the 20th century brought us the automobile and zoning codes, which, you know, divided up our cities into different kinds of zones and, you know, put a lot of residential neighborhoods pretty far away from uh, commercial districts and, you know, shopping districts and so forth. You know, in, in the past, what you could walk to was, was what was around you, right? Um, and so in some ways, this is an idea to sort of return to that time. Um, and there are cities like Paris, you know, Barcelona, uh, Milan, European cities that sort of hew a little bit closer to that older model that um, have actually been working on this for for some time. Um, and also here in the U.S., Portland, Oregon um, is one example of a city that's really been working on what it calls complete neighborhoods where you have your, you know, shopping, your library, your health services, your daycare, your, your school, you know, within a 15 to 20 minute walk or, or bike ride or, or transit trip. Right. Um, so, yeah. And, and I think it's really kind of taken off um, this year, partly because of the pandemic, which which I'd be happy to talk about more. Well, and let's talk about that. I have to say it sounds utopian. I think you say that it is utopian in many ways in your story. But in because of the pandemic, yeah, use that as the backdrop and, and how we are thinking about this kind of concept for basically urban living and maybe not just urban living, um, but even kind of smaller cities or more modern cities. Uh, that's right. I mean, it is it is a pretty significant departure from that the recent past where, you know, certainly here in the United States, I think we can we can also relate to the, the model or at least outside of New York, right? For, yeah. for almost any kind of trick, you're, you're getting in your car. And, and, you know, I think the average actually like U.S. trip is something like 10 miles, um, you know, whether you're going to work or, or just to gro- grocery shop or whatever it may be. So this is a really different kind of idea for, for that model of city. And indeed, it is pretty u- utopian when you think of how far cities will have to go and like how many, you know, decades of um, infrastructure investment that really will have to be unearthed to create cities that are more in this kind of European walkable uh, model. Uh, so I, I want to bring up, you know, you say utopia, and that also makes me think of the flip side, which is like, for every, you know, urban planning that had great intentions, it also can often uh, leave behind um, um, disadvantaged communities. And, and I'm wondering how, how, how that conversation is happening um, as, as, you know, cities wrestle with this trend. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the two main criticisms here are exactly what you're pointing to, Joel. I mean, if you have a 15-minute city and that means, you know, you can walk or bike to your favorite cafe, your favorite library, maybe even a a co-working space, uh, whatever it may be within, you know, a really short distance of your home. Well, the question is, who who's actually staffing, um, you know, those those nice cafes and, and grocery stores and so forth? Um, are those people who are living in your neighborhood? And, and what if you live in a fairly high income neighborhood? Um, how, how likely is that that, you know, everyone is going to be kind of staffing and, and uh, bolstering the economy in this kind of microcosmic city that we're talking about? Uh, are, are actually able to live in that area. And so the question is then, you know, is is this 15-minute city kind of neglecting to think about uh, transit systems, right, that actually do succeed in moving people, moving commuters across large distances in cities and, and actually supply a really essential service in that respect? 
So another uh, uh, challenge, I, I would call it, for this idea of a 15-minute city is is one that's actually sort of based on on weather and climate. And, you know, you, you rattled through a list of cities there of, you know, the Parises and the Portlands of the world that all have relatively mild weather. And, you know, I think of even New York to some extent um, or a place like Houston that can be like, you know, there's nobody who wants to actually walk anywhere, right? So how, how does that, uh, how does the idea of a 15 minute city wrestle with the realities of, of climate and, and climate change? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think, I do think it, that that question becomes especially interesting this year during the pandemic as we see cities all over the world grapple with this exact question of, how are we going to keep our, you know, sidewalk dining uh, and like slow streets? Uh, and there, I'm referring to how a lot of cities in the U.S. have actually shut down, uh, you know, streets, street space for cars to make way for bikes and pedestrians. Um, and so there's this question of, okay, how do we maintain, you know, socially distant um, it, it, options for commuting, options for socializing in in the kind of right of way um, as these months turn colder and darker. Um, and, and I think you're right, like, in, in terms of the urban planning concept, even as we're seeing it really um, strongly invested in and expanded in in Paris, there's not really a clear answer to that question, um, other than, you know, if you build it, they will come. Um, and, you know, there's <laughs> yep. hope that people will just stick to the new habits that they form if there's more space for them to, to walk and bike and just more things within a, an easy uh, 15-minute I gotta say, I love the concept. I mean, in my neighborhood, they've shut down a street and they're, I think, trying to build some of this around there. But I love kind of what it does to the neighborhood and the feel. Hey, the pandemic, though, I do feel like, Laura, you know, it reminded us that we kind of needed to have everything within 15 minutes if we could. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think exactly your point, you know, lines up with what I was saying. I think this concept is gaining more traction around the world mm-hmm. during the pandemic, you know, both because I think because we have seen an acceleration of the kind of, okay, we're going to turn this, you know, major traffic artery into a bike lane, right? Um, yeah. Or we're going to open up these re- residential streets into, into spaces for people to walk around or play with their kids. And so it is kind of an acceleration of this idea of, okay, we're going to transform uh, the kind of urban fabric to to be more amenable to these things also with the you know outdoor seating and so forth so i think there's that and i think there's also like cities are looking for ways to make themselves attractive places to stay right as we totally some some population loss and and uh real questions about how local economies all over the world are going to uh survive this time um you know keeping people in place keeping them them safe and and healthy this is a really uh kind of appealing and and almost like recuperative right (laughs) model exactly um, well listen they talk about crisis and they talk about disruption coming out of crisis and then getting to maybe a better way so maybe this is part of it laura bliss really cool story reporter for bloomberg city lab on the phone from san francisco check it out in the magazine and our thanks to Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on the phone in Brooklyn. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. 
Our top story at this hour, it's President Trump. We've got a couple of angles. The first one that I want to get to is among our most read on the Bloomberg Terminal. It's about what we're seeing from President Trump right now in terms of his legal defense and pursuit in regards to the election. And got to say, it's kind of right from his business playbook. So writes Bloomberg News finance reporter Max Abelson and Caleb Melby. Max, though, joining us right now on the phone in New York City. Max, so good to have you here with us. We always love when a story of yours pops up on the Bloomberg. And this one is an interesting one because I think some people might have been scratching their heads over why we are seeing certain actions or lack thereof from the president and you kind of lay it out for us. Carol, that's right. First of all, I just want to say I really legitimately miss you so much. Uh, <laughs> Likewise. So nice doing this with you. It's terrible to be uh, part from all of our colleagues in the newsroom for so long. But you know, this is exactly the kind of thing that we would talk about in the newsroom. You know, we would we would say to each other, you know, over the, this past week, you know, where can we look to understand this? You know, has anything like this ever happened before? A, a president who has lost an election and by a lot as well. You know, how do you understand that? And what our piece in Business Week is about, Carol, is that instead of looking at the history books, what Caleb Melby and I did is we looked at Trump's own career. And what we found really over and over again is that he he does this. He gets he gets beaten, he loses, and he keeps swinging those fists. And you know, if he if he makes contact and he draws a little bit of blood, he declares himself the champion. And and we looked at all sorts of different cases, uh the Trump Chicago building, a discrimination lawsuit, and and you see him do it time and again. Well, and what's fascinating is you say, and there's a great line, he developed a knack for dragging out losing fights long enough to win consolation prizes. I mean, it's a strategy where he drags out things and then he does win something in the end. That's absolutely right. I mean, I remember um, writing that line with Robert Friedman, our wonderful editor, and Caleb. We were on the phone together when we <laughs> wrote that line, so I'm really glad you liked it. But let's, let's talk for a second about one. You know, Trump is such a... Um, People love him so much or despise him so much. And I think it, it is kind of helpful as a journalist to just look at the public record and, and look at what reporting shows you. And, you know, you can pick a building, for example. You know, he wanted to build the biggest building in the whole world um, on a landfill, actually, in the, in, on the east side of Manhattan. Right. He couldn't do it. So then he went to the west side of Manhattan. And, you know, his, th- this was in the 80s. And then, you know, his career absolutely falls apart, Carol, in, in the beginning of the 1990s. And what he does is he basically sells the project, which some listeners might know as Television City. God, um, but he sells that project to outside investors, Hong Kong investors. They basically he sells most of it. And they turn around and they sell it as well. And what they want to do is they want to put the proceeds into two towers in California and New York. And Trump fights incredibly hard. Mm-hmm. He goes to a judge. He wants to sue for a billion dollars. He wants to stop that case. And he loses, Carol. He loses. Instead, though, he ends up exactly with that consolation prize. He gets a 30% stake in two towers in New York and California. And they are, right now, worth more than anything else he has. It's a perfect example because it shows that Trump loses important fights throughout his career over and over again. But he has this knack, thanks to his sort of penchant for a, a brutal kind of fighting, he has a penchant for sort of coming out with something at the end. It's really remarkable. And you're right. It does really help explain. But, you know, you do wonder, okay, so what does he, I don't know, what does he come out with after this? You know, he hasn't, he hasn't conceded. He hasn't acknowledged defeat. And yet you do wonder what he's holding out for. 
It's a good question. And I think it's also important as reporters to remember that really, when it comes to this man, just no one knows. Anyone who pretends that they think what what they know what Donald Trump's going to do is, you know, we'll have another thing coming. But at least what we can do as reporters, though, is talk to people like Michael Cohen and talk to his lenders and talk to his business partners. And something that really stuck out in my mind is a, a longtime business partner told me that what he thinks is that Trump is going to keep pretending that he won this election, you know, either telling himself that or telling the world that. And we know that Joe Biden is the president-elect. He won by millions of votes. Uh, He's ahead by tens of thousands of votes in important states. Trump is going to keep telling himself that he won, this this source said, this longtime business partner, even after Joe Biden is inaugurated president. And and Trump is going to keep telling the world that. And what this source thinks is that Trump is going to actually try to run again. But, you know, in a way... It's so difficult to predict the future that what I feel more comfortable with is looking at the past, where Trump just uses religious history and a certain kind of brutality to to try to get, you know, something, anything, a a Trumpian Trumpian version of victory. Well, and you talk about it with the plaza. You talk about it with so many things. And what's interesting too, Max, if you think about how he's run his businesses, in a lot of cases, he just had his name on buildings. He didn't necessarily own them. Like it was just, it's kind of really fascinating if you understand him, the businessman. And as you say, his business playbook, it really makes you understand kind of where he is and what he's thinking like right now, today. I, I think you're right. You know, he is a builder who essentially stopped putting up buildings. Right. You know, he, he's, he's a he's a, a, a real estate con, you know kingpin who isn't really one. In the same way that he's a politician who isn't really a politician. I mean, he has no no, no yeah. history to look back on in, in public office that would help us understand what's going to happen next. So that's why it was fun to go over with Caleb and look at um, you know things like Trump Chicago where. He defaulted on loans, hundreds of millions of dollars of loans, Carol. And yeah. he is the one who sues Deutsche Bank. He yeah. sues Deutsche Bank, not, you know, not the other way around. It's a, it's a really re- remarkably consistent thing that you see. Right. He's losing, but he goes on the offensive and, you know, he, he finds something to hold in his hands. And I guess you're right. We don't really know what that something is going to be. Maybe it'll be some sort of... Um, internal victory we it's really hard to say hey max you gotta be really quick 30 seconds is all i've got was it hard to get find people to talk about him or they were just very careful and guarded you know i think there are a lot of people who are afraid of trump i think a lot of politicians and a lot of business people are but you know one of his former partners said something on the record which is really smart which is he said that, that he was reminded of mike tyson who just keeps hitting and hitting and hitting until eventually he bit someone's ear off Well, it's a great story. Uh, Great reporting, again, by you and by Caleb. uh, And it's a must-read. I'll put it out on Twitter, and everybody should check it out, too, at Bloomberg.com. Max, so good to hear your voice. Max Abelson, he's finance reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone in New York. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week, TGIF, Friday the 13th, everyone. Quick check on the market trade for you on this Friday and a little bit of a risk on trade here. You've got the S&P 500, a gain of 40, almost 41 points, up 1.1% at 35.77. Dow Jones Industrial Average at 29,442, up 357 points, a gain of one and a quarter percent. And the NASDAQ up about three quarters of a percent. That works out to about an 86-point gain. The NASDAQ at 11,700. 
1.93. We are pretty much just off our highs of the session. So I mentioned uh, in the last block that we had two angles on President Trump. This is a story we mentioned yesterday on air, especially as shares of Fox, home to the Fox News Channel, took a hit selling off following some comments by President Trump. It is not great, as we know, to typically get caught in the crosshairs of the commander-in-chief. Turns out just another threat at the Fox network. Let's get into it with Bloomberg News media reporter Jerry Smith. He is with us on the phone in New York City. So nice to have you here. Um, It's been a crazy couple of weeks. uh, And yesterday, I thought it was kind of interesting as we watched what happened to Fox. Remind everybody uh, exactly what happened. It was a presidential tweet. Yeah, that's right. So uh, uh, Donald Trump uh, took to his Twitter feed uh, to attack Fox News yesterday. And uh, he also was retweeting people who were saying they were done with Fox News and that they were going to start watching some of Fox's uh, smaller cable competitors, channels like Newsmax uh, and One America News Network. And uh, you know, Donald Trump's relationship with Fox is, is complicated. Um, you know, it's sort of waxed and waned over the four years he's been president. Um, it uh, took a, um, it deteriorated really uh, during election week. Uh, Fox News was very early to call the state of Arizona for Joe Biden, and that really upset uh, the president and his allies. And he's sort of stepped up his attacks against Fox News. Uh, since then, um, you know, one of Fox's smaller competitors, Newsmax, uh, actually has not called the race for uh, Joe Biden yet and, and has actually used that as a, a way to curry favor with the president and, and some of the president's supporters who uh, may be frustrated by the results and frustrated that, that Fox News uh, had, in fact, called uh, Arizona and the entire president's uh presidential race for Joe Biden. Well, it's been interesting to watch, <laughs> no doubt about it, right, Jerry, all of that. I do wonder, though, um, and as you rightfully, you know, report in your story, I mean, Fox has gone through a lot before. I think about the sexual harassment scandal, Roger Ailes, who was so much behind, right, the creator of Fox News, and really what it's been all about, and really the driving force behind it. You know, there's been a lot of things that could have maybe taken the network down before, but it hasn't. Yeah, I mean, Fox News has been the number one cable news channel for 18 years. And and over that 18-year period, as you mentioned, there's been a lot of um, different uh, scandals and, um, you know, departures from really high-profile talent like Bill O'Reilly and Megyn Kelly and Glenn Beck. Uh, And and Fox News has managed to to maintain its its lead. Um, But, you know, I, I think you're seeing two different things. You're seeing the stock drop yesterday on the president's tweets, um, Fox's stock declined. So I think Wall Street is nervous about what is ahead for Fox News. And Fox News is a big um, part of of Fox Corporation now. Um, So I think any sort of potential ratings declines at Fox News really uh, can get investors nervous. Uh, but, you know, I also talked to some uh, conservative media uh, executives and, and observers of Fox News who were skeptical that, um, you know, Donald Trump's tweets and uh, his threats to potentially start a rival um, conservative media network. There, there's some skepticism, certainly, that this will have any effect on Fox News, uh, at least in the short term. Well, and as you know, sometimes it can be really tough, especially in the media world, to kind of upset the establishment, right, or the established players. But at the same time, CNN once was an upstart, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, it would be very difficult 
uh, especially in this day and age where people are actually cutting the cord of their cable subscription, the idea that you, you know, Donald Trump could potentially start, uh, like, for example, a new cable channel um, is, is just very hard to imagine. Fox News is um, very well established in the cable bundle. It's in millions and millions of homes carried by all the major pay TV providers. That's not an easy thing to do. Some of um, you know, Fox's smaller competitors like One America have had a lot of trouble um, getting wide distribution um, in, you know, cable homes around the country. So Fox really has a lot of built-in advantages. Um, in the early days of Fox News, they actually had to pay to get <laughs> get carriage at a lot of right. homes. So it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, you know, there's been some reports that Donald Trump might want to start his own uh, streaming service or some sort of digital mm-hmm. media company. Um, you know, that's also presents a lot of challenges. I mean, Glenn Beck was able to to have some success with that after he left Fox News. Um, Sarah Palin did not have much success when she tried to do this, uh, start a streaming service. She actually shut down her streaming service a year after uh, she launched it. Um you know, I, so it, it's hard to imagine that the, either of those routes would be very easy for the president. Hey, let me ask you something, and I'm curious what you're hearing from industry watchers. I mean, is Fox News trying to be kind of a gentler Fox News? Have they shifted in terms of how they covered the president? Uh, I wonder if, if folks think, especially in how they called um, the election, whether they see a shift more broadly at the network. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, reading of the tea leaves. Yeah. Uh, you know, what is Rupert Murdoch thinking? Um, you know, as there's a transfer of power in the White House. Um, you know, it's important to remember there's really two Fox News. There's the news division, um, which has been, you know, uh, pretty responsible in their coverage during the election. I mean, they they, call, they actually, you know, were early to call the Arizona race and they they did call the, the race for President Trump. And then you've got the opinion side, the Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingraham, yeah. um, you know, who are still very much supportive of Donald Trump, still, um, you know, beating the drum on this whole idea of, of voter fraud in the election. So, and, and you know, Donald Trump, you know, a couple hours after he attacked Fox News yesterday on his Twitter, he supported, he sent a supportive tweet to Sean Hannity. So it's, um, you know, hate you, still, love you, hate you, love you. <laughs> exactly. You get a little bit of whiplash when you see this. And it, it's just a very complicated relationship. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, a lot of people you talk to in the media industry will say that um, Donald Trump needs Fox News and Fox News needs Donald Trump and that. Um, it seems unlikely going forward that the two of them are um, are not going to be working together in some way. Well, it is interesting to watch how it all plays out, and it isn't. It is also fascinating to see it when it impacts the stock price. Jerry Smith, thank you so much. Jerry Smith, media reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone in New York City. Check him out at Jerry F. Smith on Twitter for more of his reporting when it comes to the world of media. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. 
So just about 12 minutes left in today's trading session. It is time for the drug, uh, for the drug, time for the drive to the close with Doug Sioka, CEO and partner at Kavar Capital Partners. They've got roughly $815 million in assets under management. Doug uh, is based in Leawood, Kansas, and that's where he we jo- find him joining us. But man, do I need to wrap up my day, Doug Sioka. I cannot even get it out. How are you? I'm great. I, uh, I recall listening to you last Friday evening. You talked about wine and pizza. And it can never come through. So I'm fantastic. Well, you're very sweet. I got the pizza. I don't think I had the wine last last (laughs) Friday. Um, How are you? This has been a wacky week, right? There was so much enthusiasm in the markets on Monday over the vaccine. And then we've, you know, understandably so backed off of it because we know it's not something like you, you flip a light switch and it all happens. How do you see the market trade right now, Doug? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, by and large, positive. You know, I think we should never be so bold as to assume the market will exhibit a rational behavior pattern, right? Yeah. But I think right in the short term, it typically gets it directionally correct, even if not so much um, regarding the magnitude. And shoot, I mean, for the month of November, I think we're up a little over 9% on the S&T. <laughs> and while the NASDAQ is down this week, uh, the Dow has had a significant push higher, and that's basically embedding that rotation trade that has been of fits and starts in the past, but so maybe it's getting some traction. Yeah, I think the Dow is up about 4%, a little bit under maybe, though. I'm looking at a five-day chart. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Well, listen, you know the things that are being said. You listen to Bloomberg Radio. Uh, you know, the shift out of growth into value. We've heard that rotation for so many times. Um, I was looking at some no- notes uh, that you shared with us. I mean, is that just a head fake in your view? You know, I don't know. I don't think so, Carol. I think ah. if we talked the last time I was on the call with you and Jason and talked about, right, the playbook coming out of a pandemic was actually, I'm sorry, not a pandemic, but a recession was mm-hmm. pretty true to form. And if you're going to get any extension of this market's direction, even if it's not at the same trajectory, we do need to see a broadening out into some other industry groups to play a part. And I think one of the big things that we're trying to wrap our brains around is we kind of move into at least seeing the light at the end of the tunnel post-pandemic. And the light was shined very brightly with the Pfizer news on Monday. Could we possibly get something similar from Moderna next Monday? Is that what we're rallying into the close this Friday? And I think we have to be conscientious of the fact that given the structure legislatively that was highly ambiguous but for 10 days ago, there are a couple tailwinds that could facilitate that transact, that transition from growth to value really starting to actually carry forward from this point, from, from today forward. So, so it's a big... Go no, ahead, no, no, no. Uh, please, please finish. Well, I, said it's a, I think it's important about how you manage risk in consideration thereof, right? Mm-hmm. I think it'd be um, irresponsible or misguided to abandon growth. I think certain growth areas that are actually now defensive deserve that anchoring in a portfolio. I used to think that if well, we just held some energy, financials, and utilities, those would be appropriate portfolio anchors. I think that ideology has reversed course a bit, and you want to be with those industries that have the highest elasticity of demand, which right now, defensively, are still tech and healthcare. Well, uh, that's kind of refreshing, to be quite honest, to hear that, because I do feel so many people are kind of turning their, you know, backs on some of those FANG names, those names that have really been the momentum movers in this marketplace. But when you think about them, you know, they're big companies, they sell a lot, they do a lot. And you're right, they are very much representative of kind of what's going on in our economy right now. They are, and I think the, 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 the key word that used to only describe Apple but really applies across some of the thing names is the ecosystem. Mm. And they have so deeply penetrated our existence from a healthcare, financial services, education, 
there's so much intertwinement that is wrapped around this ecosystem that the penetration points that they're partnering with other companies that is broadening the representation even within tech still means to us that sector does play well for quite a while. Okay. So where don't you want to be? Yeah, I think, I think where you don't want to be is in long-duration credit. I think where you don't want to be is in some of the value traps, right? We, we think that there's going to be some, to my point earlier, rotation, but it needs to be in the, in the quality-established consumer staples. It needs to be in the financial services stocks that are deeply embracing fintech and the payment systems. Energy should do well, but not the old tried-and-true deep-water drillers and the refiners There's and the E&P companies. There has to be, and it's not just clean and renewable energy, it's smart energy. And there's going to be a transition within that sector that's going to favor the big boys initially because scale is going to be meaningful in the absence of margin. But I think ultimately we'll see an unwind, and there's going to be some really cool entrepreneurial-type energy companies that hit the scene as well. What about the election and the election outcome? I mean, is that going to be something that you think significantly impacts the financial market environment? I mean, it certainly will potentially impact certain industries, but I'm just curious how you see it. Yeah, so it's really, really interesting, right? Last week, like watching the election results come in, kind of had a side-by-side setup with kind of the hard money odds on Biden versus Trump next to my Bloomberg terminal with the futures next to just the normal uh, terrestrial uh, TV stations, right? right? Going into the evening, couple strong days again, supposedly based on this perspective positive of the big blue wave. Massive trade tension thaw, massive stimulus, infrastructure bill, and still at some point down the line a vaccine. A couple hours in, right, this blue tsunami theory unwinds, as do the futures, on the thought that we're going to have this very long, drawn-out, diabolical court fight, and everyone has these visions of hanging chads dancing in their heads. (laughs) Then less than an hour after that, the Nasdaq futures go lock limit up. And there's this immediate incorporation of the positives of a Trump presidency and a GOP center attention, the elongation of a market trajectory that's been undeniably constructive. So what does it tell you? Two things. One, there's a reason that three days before the election, it was Jerome Powell, not Joe Biden, not Donald Trump, that covered, that graced the cover of Barron's. Number two, there's an old expression in investing that no longer applies. Yeah. People used to say markets go up like an escalator and down like an elevator. Right. It's really more like a bungee cord. And what's happening is we're getting this magnificently fast incorporation of tactical data into the market that's immediately reflected in the price action. Right. And it's attempting to front run that is nearly impossible. So even though we've got this administration that we think actually has a reasonably strong tailwind because of the positivity of gridlocked government, right. there are going to be sectors of the economy that will do well or poorly. But the bigger thing is what's happening in kind of the macro environment. The most important component of that is the posture of the Fed. Which has not disappointed us, right, up to this point, and I don't expect it will, that they're going to do everything they need to to make sure that, you know, whatever they can do in their toolkit, as they like to say, to kind of yeah. protect this economy, especially if you can't get policymakers I, I, to do something in terms of stimulus. I, I think they've done a heroic job. I, I think yeah. Jerome Powell's pleading and the fact that he's apolitical makes that pleading resonate that they need more buttressing from fiscal policy support. Perhaps they get that in the next seating of the Senate and the Congress, and I'm hopeful that they do. But, look, he's committed to anchoring rates at zero. If we get some cross-border commerce because there's a trade tension thaw and a steepening the yield curve, 
that's going to finally offer what he's been craving, which is some positive pricing power in the form yeah. of, of, of future inflation. That'd be great. Last, last, I forgot to ask you, are you guys doing okay? Your family's doing okay, especially with COVID? Thank you. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much. We are. I mean, I think like a lot of places around the country, I mean, we are girded for battle right now with COVID. Yeah. We're in a serious spike in Kansas City. And so taking the necessary precautions as best we can to keep the pressure off our healthcare system. Well, stay well and stay safe, Doug. Um, nice to check in with you. Doug Sioka, he's Chief Executive Officer Partner at Kavar Capital Partners, based in Leewood, Kansas. We've talked a lot about what's going on on the Midwest in terms of those uh, coronavirus cases and increasing hospitalizations. Uh, really, really tough situation. Uh, good to, though, check in with D- Doug and hear that he's doing okay. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.